right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast, sponsored by Roughneck Scarves. This is episode number 284. So with that number, we'll look to the NWSL, currently on pause. Nearly 300 players have been drafted into the league, and number 284 on that list is Ella Stevens out of Duke. She was selected with the number 24 overall pick by the Chicago Red Stars this year. And no club has used more draft picks than the Chicago Red Stars, with 43 players being selected over eight drafts. Sky Blue is a close second with 41 picks. All right, two chats today. First with my friend Charles Bohm of SoccerWire.com and several other soccer sites. Charles and I talked about um, updates to the current U.S. Soccer versus U.S. Women's National Team Players Association lawsuit. Charles also gave us some historical context, how the U.S. Soccer got to this kind of awkward position. And if you haven't listened to it already, um, Charles did a great podcast for SoccerWire.com with a a California lawyer who's also a big soccer person. Um, I highly recommend listening to that entire podcast to get as much kind of historical context and also legal explanation. Uh, that you can, because as Charles and I talk about, there's the court of public opinion, but then there's actually the court and the rules are a little different. And then I chatted with Melissa Hernandez, who covers Liga Mex Femenil. We talked about the Mexico women's national team performance in Olympic qualifying and last month's Cyprus Cup. Plus, she gave me an update on how Liga Mex or Liga MX, as you want to say, uh, is doing in the midst of quarantine. And in between the two chats, of course, is my recurring segment called Jen's Blaining. This week, what is a cap and what's not a cap and why is it called a cap? All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Charles Bohm or Charlie Bohm, however you prefer. Uh, Soccer writer extraordinaire who's written for MLSsoccer.com soccerwire.com a lot of other places charles thank you for joining me today and and thank you in advance for explaining a lot of really dry legal talk topics thank you and i, I want to uh but i, I do want to <laughs> i got to deflect a little on that second one because i don't know how well i'll be able to translate and i <laughs> i mostly just try and uh shine the light on other people who who get it better than i do so so no no legal advice is intended or implied in this conversation. Well, and I really just want this to be a teaser for listeners so they can go listen to the the what hour long podcast you did for Soccer forty five minutes. It wasn't so bad, yeah. y'all. Yeah, no, but but so that's, but that's but I mean it that way is like a packed you know, forty five minutes. Yeah, that's like some serious <laughs> content. So if you really want a deep dive, I recommend the the, the latest episode of the Soccer Wire podcast. But Okay, so say I'm just, you know, random Woso fan on the street. I'm seeing this stuff over the last several weeks, especially how everything came to a head, uh, you know, with that last She Believes game of the kind of, you know, we we got the reveal of some really idiotic uh, statements that U.S. Arca was making in some of their documents. Uh, You had Carlos Cadero apologize, step down. We've got Cindy Parlo as president now. But the documents that came out this week, what does it mean? 
Well, it's I'm I'm hesitant to try and give anything definitive. Uh, so I'm gonna, <laughs> and, and, and I'm, unfortunately, that means I may sound mealy mouthed here, um, because first of all, so so thankfully we have um, a bigger press pack than we've ever had. Um, uh, you know, there's there's professionals, some of them full time professionals who are um, all over Pacer, uh, the the legal filing system, who are able to in almost in real time jump on the latest filings that go public. Um, sift through them, uh, post highlights, kind of help us put them in context and that sort of thing. So thank God for, for Meg Linehan and Jonathan Tannenwald and the many, many, many others um, who I am uh, proud and fortunate to consider colleagues via the NWSL Media Association, the North American Soccer Reporters and so forth. So it, again, by the time this article, this uh, pod comes out, we may already be out of date. So that's, <laughs> you've got to say that, that you got to have that, that, that yeah, warning. Based um, on but I would, second. <laughs> uh, T minus. Yeah. So anyway, the, um, it appears that the change of leadership at the top of the U.S. Soccer Federation, which was a direct result of the second most recent, uh, if I have my my dates right here, uh, mm-hmm. batch of legal filings, which sort of really were a sea shift in terms of taking what was already a pretty well-established perception of the legal approach being taken by the Federation towards the women's national team um, in terms of the um, trying to um, use as a legal maneuver, uh, which is a legal maneuver that could yet work in court in front with a judge. Um, but that looks much different in the, in the layperson's context of, of headlines and online discussions and media coverage. Um, so, so the, um, the batch of filings that, that led to Cardellos, Carlos Cordero resigning from the, the Federation presidency were, um, probably the most, um, uh, unflattering, um, portrayals of this legal strategy to separate the men's national team, the women's national team sort of arrangements with the Federation. Um, and by and doing so by driving home the, uh, the a, a direct comparison between those teams, not only their, inv- their international landscapes that they play in, even their physical size and strength um, and the, the money that, that, that is part of that floats around the system that they're in respectively. Uh, so that, that, uh, the most recent, this week's latest filings seem to suggest a much different tack, uh, a retreat of sorts, uh, an attempt at conciliation, um, on the part of Cohn and the Federation. So it seems to be a good thing for the, for the women's national team. And they've certainly, it's a reflection. I think it, it, I can say with much more, Assurance that it's a reflection of the public relations battle being so dominated by the women's national team, um, so much so that it's it's washed over into the legal field more explicitly than I even expected, or that I think most people would expect to happen in a situation like this. So the federation isn't quite conceding; they're not waving the white flag just yet, but they definitely retreated from some some key ground that they were trying to stake out in legal terms. Well, and and I think um, a big point, you know, from what you're talking about and and from your podcast is there's the legal battle and there's the PR battle, right? And you mentioned that, you know, even the really, you know, unflattering language that, you know, that we saw revealed, um, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, PR wise, you're like, really? They're going to hang their hats on that? You know, it's like, but that could still work as a legal strategy. It's just a horrible, horrible PR strategy. And so I, I feel like U.S. soccer underestimated, 
you know, the, the temperature of the water before sticking their foot in. Um, and I, I, I'm so intrigued with the, the, like the more I get into the nitty gritty of what the players are claiming and what the actual, you know, legal definitions are that, you know, both, both sides seem to have a case, right? It's not, it's not as simple as we'd like it to be. It's not equal pay. It's not like you can just go, okay, they should be paid the same. There's all of these different qualifiers. That's correct. And, and uh, I say this at the, knowing that it, there's a real risk that, um, that hardcore USWNT fans are going to be dismayed or even insulted or angered by, by what I'm saying. But right. we have to distinguish what is quote unquote true or quote unquote factual or obvious in, in the, public discussion about the, the the women's national team and their efforts, um, their, their fight, multi-year fight now for equity or what they consider equity from what is uh, effective in a courtroom, what case law, what follows and, and is based off of established precedent and case law. Um, and the fact that, that no matter how many millions of people express themselves uh, online or come out and support the women's national team or buy their T-shirts that commemorate the, the, the protests that they made during She Believes Cup, um, none of that really – there's all, there's an in, inherent limit on how much that translates into a courtroom where key aspects of this case as it stands now are going to be decided by, by what I'm pretty certain is an old white guy. In, in some robes, right? <laughs> and we have, um, and so that's why the, the podcast uh, episode that that you're referring to, um, I urge people to go check it out. It's on soccerwire.com pod, slash podcast is our podcast homes. It's episode 24 with uh, UCLA law professor Stephen Bank. And Stephen is um, a, a, a so- soccer guy from a soccer family um, who also just happens to be um, an extremely accomplished professor and lawyer, and, and his specialty is business uh, and tax policy. But he's become a really great resource for for all of us in the in Woso and beyond, um, in terms of uh, making these legal issues much more understandable and and boiling things down with uh, succinctness and with um, with real clarity. And and um, so I, was, I had a great conversation with him, and 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 helped kind of put context to what's happening. So as he pointed out, the, the Federation is, is used to winning in court. I mean, there's, there's a, right. a, a significant number of major legal decisions. We can go back a quarter century now, um, a range of topics and in, in, in areas and in, in cases in which the Federation typically wins. And um, they, they probably, given that there's, we, we know no matter what happens with this case, it's definitely exposed some really significant cultural and organizational issues at the Federation that transcend this particular case, that transcend the legal battles in general, right? Um, even, which is hard to do considering that this is now a $9 million line item in the Federation's budget. They're spending three times what they budgeted on legal fees this year alone. And I think they're going to have to shell out a bunch more to bring this case to a close. Uh, but the most important thing I would want to um, emphasize to listeners is that um, ne- the and 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 Stephen is really good at, at emphasizing this point. Um, neither side really wants this case to go all the way to trial and and re- be be decided by a a verdict in the, in that sense because there's huge risks for both sides. If the women get everything they're asking for, they could quite literally bankrupt or nearly bankrupt the federation. Right. Um, Which and if the women help. overplay, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so again, we have to remember it's not entirely their problem, but the 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 money that all national teams make, in this case, both national teams make, 
um, is ne- is never entirely shared among the players. It always funds other aspects uh, of programming at the Federation, most of it technical technical terms. I mean, it's the, the youth national teams are almost always loss leaders. Sometimes they are enormous losses, but they right. are typically underwritten by the success and popularity of the senior teams. And that's the, the quite that we then from there we get into the details of how it's spread, you know, distributed and how all the, the processes work and the communications break down and so forth. But the, the Federation does not, I think that has reason to fear in a way that they maybe didn't fear enough before now, um, going, getting this thing all the way to a trial set stage. And so does the, do the players, because if they lose and there's ample amount of case study that suggests that their legal case is not as strong as their public relations court of public opinion case, then they could, they could be stuck with exactly what they have now or even less. Uh, so I think, um, I'm expecting that the judge will guide. He seems to be guiding the two parties back to the negotiating table, um, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll wait to see how hard he pushes, how they react to that. I think there's a real concern that the nat- that the players overplay their hand in this situation, and so there's there's this is that we're getting into a, a really key juncture of this saga where we, I really hope that that the people on both sides are thoughtful and intelligent and make wise decisions uh, with their next moves. Well, and I want to go back to something you said about about prize money, because I, th- I think this does get overlooked a lot. And I remember this being an issue in 2015 as well, when, you know, the public started to learn the just the big difference between the payout for the Women's World Cup and the payout for the Men's World Cup. And they just assumed that all that money goes straight to the players. It does not go to the players. That check is written to the winning federation. Right. And different federations use that money differently. Um, You know, about what, less than 25 percent of the prize money from the 2018 World Cup um, went to the actual French players. The rest went to the federation, um, where when you look at the percentage of how much of the prize money from last summer the U.S. woman got compared to the Federation, you know, it's a much larger percentage. Now, obviously, the discrepancy there is really FIFA's prize money, but that's not something the players can change from a legal standpoint. I've seen some people post, it's like, why don't the players sue FIFA? It's like, well, FIFA's not in the U.S. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the, the, you know, the equal pay, you know, all, all of those statutes that they're suing under don't apply, you know, mm-hmm. necessarily in, in Switzerland. So this is, you know, you, you've got to work with your, your federation. And I also wonder, especially with, so we now have the Olympics delayed, you know, we've had some friendlies canceled. We have the NWSL season postponed for, you know, we're not sure how long, what happens? I mean, I'm just throwing this out there. What happens if we get to July and the U.S. women haven't played a game um, and haven't joined their clubs, right? So, you know, is that something that U.S. soccer tries to bring up of like, hey, we're funding these people at not only 100% of their national team salary, but 100% of their club salary, I could see that being a talking point uh, or being something that's mentioned. I don't know that it would uh, fundamentally change the balance um, uh, of the situation because it's one, it's, you know, in legal terms, there's a sort of tail, right? That the, 
the things that happen in in court reflect the realities of several years ago. I mean, this, if I'm remembering right, th- this specific legal procedure or set of procedures dates back to 2016. So, right, right. Know, there, there's always everything a, moves a, so a slowly. <laughs> right, right. Um, and and I think no, this is so. I mean. This is genuinely unprecedented. There are, there are there's there are legal precedents that will be that are being considered and being argued over and will eventually be used in some form or fashion to decide this case, but there's not much of one to to speak of for for a global pandemic that's brought life as we know it to a um, if not a standstill certainly to a a, a dramatic slowdown. So that's um and that's a tough spot and that's where. Again, we I, I I think it's helpful sometimes to look at the power dynamics, right? And and the federation and the and the the women's national teamers and their union are the two key players here, the ones that everyone's paying attention to. But they are two still two of the most powerful actors, um, the ones that are that stand to really be hurt by a, an extended stoppage of play uh, are the NWSL teams. You know the rank and file NWSL players who are making a fraction of what the national teamers make and are and have a fraction of the security and and um, uh, common cause in the sense that there is an NWSL union, but it's it still doesn't have a CBA. It's still a fledgling organization, right? Uh, being run by y- Yaila Averbu. So um, we. Uh, there, there, there definitely are consequences in the offing for an extended stoppage, um, but it's it, it's a, a couple of rungs below um, the players and the and the federation. Although it, inevitably, this this crisis and this pandemic will will tick its way uh, uh, up the sort of chain of consequences sooner or later. Well, and and one of the reasons that occurred to me about you know the 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 national team players with you know the kind of the double salary and, and not playing, I just thought of that because. You know, as you said, it's not good for either side to go to trial, you know, and we can already see that the judges kind of lead, like you said, kind of leading both to, you know, hopefully settling somehow, because I think neither side is going to end up looking good if, if they go to trial. Um, you know, the, the the battle cry has been for the last several years, equal pay, right? And they're like, it's simple. It's equal pay. It's like... But the more you read about this, you get into these documents, it's it's not simple when, um, you know, the way these two teams have been paid over the last couple of decades is very, very different, you know, for, for I mean, obvious reasons to me and you, right? Because we've been covering this for a while. Might not be as obvious um, to to fans that are pretty new to following the women's national team, right? But, you know, the, b- both teams grew out of, different needs in different scenarios, especially when, you know, we've had such long pockets of not having any pro league in the U S right. Like it's actually been a luxury of sorts that we've, you know, the NWSL is on the verge of going into its eight season. Right. But you look Mm -hmm. before that and the big reason that, that the U S women's national team started a CBA back in the day, I think the first one was kind of, going into 1996 was just, you know, they weren't playing anywhere else. There wasn't anywhere else for them to get funds. Right. So they were just trying to make sure that anytime they got called into camp that you got paid. I mean, the, the first time I met, um, Julie Foudy about three years ago when, when I started doing the lifetime broadcast, I mean, I had had this question in my head like for a couple of years and I was just so thrilled that I ended up sitting next to her at, at dinner. We had a, a whole group dinner and I, and I said, you have to tell me like when you were first negotiating that CBA back in 95, 96, you, you know, 
you can't tell me that the plan was to have like, you know, this kind of locked in only 18 people get a contract and all, you know, all of the various things. And she's like, no, we were just trying to make sure you got paid if you got called into camp. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's so it's like the U.S. women's CBA took one path. The men's took a different path, obviously, because you had MLS come about in the early mid 90s. And, you know, and then. And then that outside thing, which we can't control, at least I, I don't see how we can control it, is, you know, what FIFA pays. But I just I feel like we're we are about to turn a corner. It, I mean, I mean, maybe I'm a little too hopeful, but with Cindy Parlow taking over as, as, as president, she seems pretty level headed. She's not in this for the long haul, which I think is actually a good thing. Right. Like she's not looking to to run again next year. Well, I think yeah. she's been fairly. I, I think you, that may be the outcome. I would not be surprised, uh-huh. but I, I don't. I, she's been a fairly. Um, I don't know. It's not the right word, but cagey. You know, she, she did yeah. uh, the when she did the conference call with media. She wouldn't commit either way. So right. um, you know that that's all been kind of deferred for the moment. I, I have some unanswered questions about who knew what and when um, within uh-huh. the organization because I, I haven't found the. <sighs> What I'd say is the implicit narrative um, and and sk- timeline of events that's that that she and others around the federation are, are seem to suggest or sort of explain what happened to me either um, and and it's and it also exposes some fundamental weaknesses in the structure of this organization and one yes. of my lasting observations that I've taken from watching the federation in the last few years is that. Um, we have a we have a, a national govern, governing body that is also a, a nonprofit that is also a international competitor that is also a business entity on some level that um, has grown really dramatically in the last twenty five or so years. The, the budget is many Le- times what it was. Professionalism. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's a it's a dizzying growth that reflects the game's growth here, but the governance structures uh, and the cultural and the culture around it did simply did not keep pace, and so we're left with this sort of uh, what is can be a clunky and and inefficient way of running things now. Granted, the, the organization has effectively been without a CEO. The CEO is the highest paid employee. It's the, the nominal executive chief of the organization. The vice president and president are sort of board type positions. They're more like elected volunteers. <laughs> right. So, so Cindy Parlo Cohn says that she um, didn't hadn't seen these legal filings that went out that were considered so offensive and that really t- that really turned um, the, the general trajectory of this situation in in a, in a new direction. Um, uh, and yet she also in the same press conference said that she was on a special litigation committee that had been set up to deal with this and all these other um, legal uh, fights that the the Fed finds itself in. So to me, it's hard to reconcile that the vice president, who was also on this special committee, didn't see these things or and, and, and by impl- implication, didn't know the general tenor of the Federation's legal argument and legal language in this case. I, I, I'm, I'm left like with more questions, right? So either there was the, the cultural issues and the communications issues are worse even than we thought, or someone's not being entirely forthright about who knew what and when. So again, these are just questions, not intending to impugn anyone, but I I, I hope um, for the sake of everyone involved that, that her uh, ascension, and she is the first woman in the woman in the history of this um, century plus old organization uh, to, to sit in the top seat. So that's a, a, a huge milestone in and of itself. Um, 
but the 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 deeper issues run way way deeper than presidential level or even even CEO and we'll we'll have to see it's a it's a, a steep, steep task for Will Wilson the new CEO to uh, to to come in and into and have to hit the ground running with yeah of course yeah that that press conference or press conference call um you know with him and Cindy Parlow was more about litigation than anything else where normally announcing the CEO wouldn't be all, all mm-hmm. about litigation. Um, but just the fact that they finally have a CEO is, is huge. I mean, when, when did Dan Flynn leave and uh, what, and, and even before Dan Flynn left, it had been a, a while, I mean, since he had announced it. So um, he gave ample you know, notice yeah, and ample, ample opportunity. Ample notice. Yeah. You know, and then of course we had last summer, the whole brouhaha with the, the, uh, employee reviews on Glassdoor, which turned out to be actually legitimate bad reviews, you know, of just, you know, uh, a, a poor work environment. So, you know, just, just the fact that they were finally able to hire somebody who seems like um, a quality CEO, I, I think, is is a huge move. And, and I saw some comments online, people saying, oh, my God, I can't believe they hired somebody who used to work at some. And I like, of all the things going on right now, that's like, the least of your worries. <laughs> like well, and, but th- that I think um, it's a legitimate conversation to have. I don't think, um, and I think to some extent, there's this really a hardened narrative around everything the Federation does now because you had this right. sequence of of hits, right? You had the, um, you know, you you had the 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 good thing of mostly good thing of the Copa America Centenario, this huge windfall from that tournament in the summer of 2016 that then, and then you led into the disastrous men's national team qualifying campaign, the, the crash and burn in Cuba uh, in October of 2017. And, and then that dovetailed or snowballed whatever metaphor you like into the, the growing um, uh, contentiousness of the, the pay equity uh, saga with the women and so there's now there's this really well established narrative, especially among I think certain segments of this hardcore soccer community, the general public uh, soccer public in this country that that the the federation stinks and that um, you know they can't get out of their own way and they 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 couldn't um, you know they couldn't pull off a uh, a, a one person parade and that sort of thing and 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 there, there's, <laughs> there's those, those that perception did not arrive and did not evolve into the into that by accident um, and I've been as harsh a critic of the federation as anyone and I was the the particularly having the surreal experience that I had covering as best I could cover the 2018 presidential election um, of USSF so I understand why people see that but I urge um, anybody who's listening it, it, uh, your odds are you are um, you know, fear, loathe, or mock the Federation and everything it does right now. And I understand why you may feel that way, but I urge you to look deeper into it's never as one-sided as it may appear, right? It's There's always nuance on the surface. And the Federation is is really in an awkward position right now because there's only so much they can say publicly. They have to try and do as much as they can while, uh, behind closed doors in the sense of respecting the privacy of certain uh, situations and certain negotiations and conversations and all that sort of thing. So just um, remember that that this this case wouldn't still be rumbling on if it was a slam dunk in favor of the women's national team, right? So there's a, a, so much to it. And even Becky Sauerbrunn herself has 
has um, very uh, fairly and, in, and intelligently um, distinguished between the concept of pay equality, which is a great slogan, but but has mm-hmm. limits to the context of this of these different CBAs and these different relationships versus pay equity. So what they want, they they're not necessarily. Uh, I don't think the federate the the women will and their union will go to the mat over equality because they know that may not necessarily have the an outcome that benefits their entire membership. They're looking right. for equity and that's what they feel that they don't have. And that's what they're ready to go to the mat for. And, and the distinction there is uh, that the full-time status that a women's national team uh, core member of that roster can, can get is fundamentally different than the relationship that any men's national teamer has had financially with the Federation. You'd have to date back uh, to around the 1994 World Cup cycle when men's national teamers were on full-time contracts simply because there was no domestic pro league and there was limited opportunities for all the, right. the, the very best men's national teamers to play abroad. So they were guys, Alexi Lalas was on that deal. They were basically locked up in a, in a camp kind of environment for long stretches of, of a, of a given year at the uh, Olympic training center in California. I think it was Chula Vista. Uh, maybe me getting my, my city wrong there, it's but probably Chula Vista. Yeah. And like, so, so there was, that was, um, these arrangements and the the arrangements that the women have had at times where you're a full-time national teamer, I think everybody, if they were really forced to be entirely truthful, would say that's not ideal. And maybe the current situation where you're sort of split between an NWSL commitment and a national team commitment isn't ideal either, but it came about as a result of trying to sort of bridge these gaps and give the best players in the country the best opportunity to, to, reach and maintain a dominant level, uh, a, a national team um, competition. And it, in that regard, they're, they're two-time defending world champions and a juggernaut. Something is going right, you know, and you, and you, it is simplistic to say that's simply a matter of, well, these, this particular generation or crop of players is so amazing. They are amazing, but they are also the product um, and the beneficiaries of, of an environment that the Federation, we do have to, however, grudgingly give them credit for helping to foster. And that's that's such a great point, and and I'm glad that that you brought up some of the 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 history, even though it's even not women's national team history, but but like how Copa Centenario's financial success in 2016, the men not qualifying for the World Cup, all of that it's it's one federation, right? So. It, it does all sides affect each other. It, you know, the, the, the women's national team can't operate, um, you know, in, in, in a vacuum, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and I'm, um, I always like to hear what, what Becky Sauerbrunn has to say, and I, I'm glad they're, they're thinking about equity because it's, you know, one for the men, for the most part, they're a contractor for the women, for the most part, they're employees. It's a very different pay situation for anybody that's, you know, ever worked freelance. They, you know, they, they know what I, what I'm talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and I think we're at a really interesting Including time. Including this one right here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 1099 um, lifestyle is just fundamentally different. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're at a really interesting time where, you know, so you've got this women's league that's been around long enough. You know, we're, we're hoping when some of these other issues get resolved that, you know, maybe the league can, you know, separate from its support that's been provided by U.S. soccer, right? And like you were saying, it's it's like maybe there's a new um situation that 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 comes out of this but you know i'm i'm glad the players are willing to go to the mattresses you know um but i i do hope it gets resolved uh without going to trial because that 
that I don't think that would make either side look good, though. Um, I'm sure it would bring very high ratings for Court TV. <laughs> well, I would I would say that um, <laughs> again that the my my most optimistic reading of the current situation is that. Uh, a change of leadership, and especially one uh, with such symbolic um, heft to have a former women's national teamer uh, who's also coached some of the players involved. You have to remember, CPC also uh, won the first ever NWSL championship. Right, uh, as the coach right. Of the she's one Lawrence. for one. She's been around, and she's been she's and she's now in a um, uh, you know a kind of a director kind of role with uh, North Carolina FC. She's worked in the youth game. So she's been, I wouldn't say she is a um, completely balanced arbitrator or whatever, but she is certainly, there's a, there's a strong, um, yeah, there's strong value in having someone like her step into the presidency, regardless of this, of this uh, somewhat unusual and strange circumstances uh, that led to it. If this, if this allows for there to be a little bit of a softening of the hardened, um, uh, feelings and ramparts and you know trenches that have been dug. If it if it just provides an opportunity for both sides to save face and reset without having it be painted as a win or a loss for either side, then that could be the 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 breakthrough that and and eventually benefits everyone. Well, and last last thing, um, Charles, just one one of the differences I've noticed with uh, now compared to three years ago when this lawsuit was first filed, if I remember correctly, um, it seems like there's less men's national team versus women's national team. It seems like we're seeing more public support from the men of the women's national team. And obviously some of that could be because, you know, they didn't qualify uh, for the 2018 World Cup. But it, it, it seems like there's, there's a, an attitude shift of, you know, they might be more powerful uh, working together. Or am yeah. I just making that up in my head? No, I think I think once again, as with so many aspects of this uh, this situation, is very nuanced. Um, there have been there are there are complex uh, complex sets, sets of feelings among the individuals and the and the organizations on either side of it. Um, the there are men's players who feel like they are. Um, they are unfairly attacked or or degraded simply as you know compared to the women's national team who who live and play and compete in a fundamentally different ecosystem from theirs. And then on the other side, there's a, a long narrative or in and around the women's national team of, of constant inequality of, of, of institutional sexism or at the very least chauvinism that has in, in, indirectly or directly benefited the men uh, and, and not benefited them. So but if you again, if you look in bigger terms, these are the, there should be a sense of solidarity here. These two organizations and their members have way more in common with one another than than they do with the federation or the executives of the federation. And so, um, class consciousness, for lack of a better term here, at least solidarity in the sense of of workers being able to recognize their shared interests um, is key here because we've seen in, individual players on both sides sort of. Um, driven to to um, draw unflattering comparisons with their their counterparts on the other side of the gender divide, and I don't think that's been uh, and and there's a lot of fans who are driven to that because obviously the women look look like they're a lot 
they seem to be a much more successful team, uh, and right. successful collective, but they're both, they've both, uh, feel like they've been done wrong, um, for long periods of their history by the Federation. And in a, in a parallel universe, they would be in the same union in many countries around the world. The players, right. the mandolinist players are, are, are union, uh, have one union rather than two. And there's a whole story behind why there's two here. That they they can um, and 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 I I wouldn't I would tell fans don't expect to see individual male players um, speaking out some will most won't because a lot of them feel and and it, and it, it wouldn't be so different if the shoe was on the other foot a lot of them feel that collective statements collective actions have a lot more heft and those are inevitably harder to agree on right so the the right. the, the men's national team players union has spoken out multiple times. Uh, in in support in strong support of the women's efforts and in strong withering critically criticism of the of the federation. So um, so there's uh, hopefully they can recognize the, the the macro factors and and not get distracted with sort of squabbling. Well, well said, Charles. Good job. I think you did a pretty good job of making this accessible. For my listeners, <laughs> my, um, I, I think you know, my uh, my labor union roots are showing there. Before I got into soccer <laughs> full time, I, I worked for a labor communications and PR firm, and, and I'm I'm probably re- reflecting that right now. I was ready for you to start dropping <laughs> phrases like Marxist philosophy or or, or something like that. But March on um, Soccer House, seize the means of production. <laughs> <laughs> but I highly recommend that everybody check out um, the podcast episode that Charles did with Professor Law Professor Stephen Bank. Um, at soccerwire.com and Charles always so great to talk soccer with you likewise Jen time for some Jen'splaining uh, today's topic what is a cap what's not a cap why do we call it a cap so first the term cap dates back to the late 19th century the custom started by the english of course was for a player to receive a cap when they played an international match Uh, of course the english one was a white cap with a red embroidered rose on it Uh, so of course these days many years later uh when a player represents her national team we say she's earned a cap even though she doesn't get a physical cap It's important to note that uh, the term can be used pretty freely, but when we're counting caps for, say, a player during the World Cup or, uh, you know, national team appearance, senior caps, when you're playing for the senior national team, are really the most important thing that you're counting. You don't mix caps playing national team and club. Uh, You don't mix caps playing for your U19 team, your U20, or your senior national team. So, you know, think about Alex Morgan. She got her first cap in March 2010 playing for the senior national team against Mexico. She had already played for the U20 women's national team, but generally cap should mean the, the senior national team. Also, even if you're playing for your senior national team, you don't get a cap just being on the roster. You actually have to take the field. Uh, The game must be against another international team. So occasionally you have a national team play a club uh, just, you know, for a warm up game or preparation game. That's not a full international match. So that appearance doesn't count as a cap. Any goals scored in that match don't count as international goals. 
Um, there was actually a match between Canada and the USA in July 1986 that was later determined by FIFA to not meet the criteria for a full international match. I don't have all the details, but I'm, I'm guessing it was they didn't follow subbing rules or it wasn't a certain length or both teams weren't the full, full international team. Um, it, it's hard to track that down. But bottom line, it meant that that game being taken away as a full international meant that two U.S. players lost their only international cap. And also April Heinrichs lost a couple of goals from her international total. Now, we've seen, of course, 40 U.S. women's national team players reach 100 caps with Crystal Dunn and Julie Ertz reaching that milestone recently. And we have Christine Sinclair from Canada and Carly Lloyd from the USA uh, on track to reach 300 caps. There's only two people in the history of international soccer that have passed that mark. Christy Rampone, who retired with 311, and world record holder Christine Lilly with 354. Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Melissa Hernandez from south of the border, from San Luis, uh, who covers the Mexican Women's Soccer League, a.k.a. Liga Mex. Um, Melissa, how, how are you doing down there in San Luis? Great. Everything's too boring, but we're having this just fine. So. And, and suffering, suffering the same way we are with no live soccer to watch. Yeah, I'm lucky that Chivas decided to release some some matches on their streaming website. I haven't seen all of them, but I'm definitely going to start, which is going to be great because they have matches from 2017 when, when they won the title all the way to 2019. So it's going to be interesting to, to watch them and see even how the team has changed. So I'm taking that as an opportunity to review the, what the team has been doing. Now, is that... Would those be those games be viewable from the U.S. and elsewhere outside of Mexico? Yeah, actually, I was just checking. Um, Chivas TV, which is like the streaming platform for the team, they made those for free. So all you need to do is register and put a code they're giving, and you can access those matches like for free without. Oh, them. that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So let's let's talk a little bit about the Mexico and national team first, and then we'll get back to, to Liga Mex and what's going on with them right now. But uh, so two tournaments for for Mexico this year. Obviously, the first one was the Concacaf Olympic qualifying tournament, you know, and then uh, the the Cyprus Cup last month. But first, let's talk about Concacaf qualifying. Um, you know, this was an opportunity, I, I think, to rebound from what, you know, we all know was a pretty disappointing 2018 CONCACAF tournament where Mexico did not qualify for the 2019 Women's World Cup. And I also feel like it's it's the start of a transition of seeing a younger roster bringing up players from the U-20 team that played at the 2018 Women's World Cup um, and, more importantly, uh, seeing more and more players coming out of Liga Max. I, I remember the qualifying tournament in 2018 working with the Fox broadcast team, and, and they would reference... They're like, yeah, you know, Mexico has this new league. And, you know, I, I guess it's not working. And I was so frustrated with that because I was like, 
most of these players who are starting don't play in that league. Like, you know, and, and, you know, you can't start a league and then boom, it makes a difference. But I think we're starting to see that difference now. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I was checking the, the roster for the Olympic qualifiers and 16 of those players were from the Liga MX Femenil, which is like 80%. Right. So we are seeing like an increase in that number. And, well, that number is a bit tricky because... We have Stephanie Mayore and Bianca Sierra who were already registered with Tigres, but they hadn't really played with Tigres because they were since January at, at, at national team camp, so they hadn't really had their league debut. But they were already like part of the of the league as well. Right, right, and you know, obviously, you know, there there's a constant cycle for any national team where you you start, you know, players you know, start moving players out and moving players in, um, you know, what are some of the younger players that you're excited uh, to see them come up through the system? Well, I think that the one who has been getting like more consistent time with the senior team has been Lisbeth Ovalle. And the last time we, we spoke, we mentioned that because it was a, a dash against Tigres match. And we're still waiting to see if that transfer is going to happen or not. We haven't really heard much about it, and even when when she was doing interviews before the Olympic qualifiers, they, they would ask Kobaye, um, "What about the transfer?" And she was like, "I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about something else because she must be fed up with all the questions. Because that's what right. everybody wants to know: what is is it going to happen and when it's going to happen? So, I think that right. in terms of of making that transition from from youth to senior, and also being potentially that player who who moves from, from Liga MX to, to the NWSL, she's like the, the player everybody's watching what's going to happen. Right, right. And, you know, I I know that uh, the Dash were planning on having another friendly against Tigris. They hadn't announced anything, but I know they were working on it. Um, and now, you know, obviously that got uh, postponed uh, along with along with everything else, um, and and I'm just so excited that we now have a situation where both Mexico and the U.S. have these solid leagues, and so that you can see some movement like that, right? Like Maria Sanchez, you know, leaving Chicago to go to Chivas USA. You know, the rumors of a Valle maybe coming to the Dash. Um, you know, just it's just the evolution of the women's game. But but let me stick with the the national team for a little while longer. Um, how do you feel that the team did during Concacaf qualifying? Were you pleased with the the results and their and and how they played? Well, I mean, um, the first match was against uh, Jamaica, and I think that I was a bit worried about that one because we know Jamaica has been doing like. Uh, giving good matches and playing well. Mm-hmm. So when they won that, I thought, okay, so they're, 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 they jumped that little first, first hurdle. And against St. Kitts, we were all expecting them to win, which they did 6-0. And then against Canada, that, that was like the, the make it or, or break it moment. Yeah, that that was the, the, the game to win the group. And the loss, I mean, it wasn't unexpected because we, we know that... Um, it's the U.S. and then a little uh, uh, step behind is Canada. And then it's about wondering who, who's going to take that third place. And I'm not sure that there is a solid plan from the Federation to make sure that Mexico 
starts uh, maybe not beating the U.S., but starting to beat Canada or at least starting to, to put a, a better fight. Because I see that the, it meant a lot to the players. Uh, they were interviewing them after the loss against the United States, and you could, you could tell they were like very emotional and very... Um, they were really feeling that loss really hard, even though you can say, oh, well, losing against the U.S. is something that, that's expected. And also the build-up to that tournament was a bit um, weird because we had the friendlies against Brazil uh, uh -huh. last December, but it doesn't really feel like the Federation was looking for those friendlies. It's more like Brazil invited them and they were like, oh, okay, let's go, let's go. So I feel like in terms of the senior national team, they're being a bit more reactive to things rather than being proactive in creating um, a plan to, to really take the team to that next level. I mean, the players, they do what they can with what they're given, but I don't know, maybe I, I would be expecting them to, to start getting matches outside of the of the high-performance center they have in Mexico City because they always go there and they have their training camp and they train there and they never really go out to, to play a friendly somewhere else most of the time. So I think that there, there really needs to be that change in terms of improving how they how they are preparing for the big tournaments because we have Christopher Cuellar saying that they want to be top 10 in the world. But there isn't really a plan in terms of the senior national team to say, how are we getting there? Because and that's, that's such that, a great point that, yeah, like you, it doesn't just happen, right? You have to go out aggressively and schedule matches against the best competition that you can find. We, you know, we really saw that with, with the U.S. the last few years that, you know, before the World Cup, Jill Ellis wasn't scheduling friendlies against weaker teams. She was making sure the the women were playing all the other top 10 teams in the world, you know, um, you know, I, Mexico sounds lucky that that Brazil invited them, you know, to play some friendlies. And and I also look at, you know, playing Cyprus Cup as opposed to the Algarve Cup, right? Like you you, you want to get the most competitive tournament you can. And there's also a bit of a missed opportunity there in terms of bringing the national team so that people can see them and start supporting them more. I mean, I would love it if they would have like a friendly at a stadium. There are really good stadiums all around the country. And for example, you have Monterrey that has a very strong uh, women's football fan base. I'm sure they, they would really go to see those matches there. So I think there's also this this point where they're not really taking, I think, full advantage of, of bringing the team out so that people really start getting to know that team. And that that's another great point. And and we've seen that um, you know, in, in many countries. Like once once the US finally started playing at home regularly, and of course I'm talking many years ago, it's like that's how they developed a fan base and a following, and then you start building revenue. And and we've seen Canada struggle to get regular home games. And when you think about how popular those players became. Um, at home after the 2012 Olympics and then hosting the World Cup in 2015. It's like, you know, take advantage of that. So, yeah, I could totally see um, a Mexico friendly um, in, in Monterrey, especially after that Dash Tigris match, you know, had had a great response, you know. And I know, I know from my women's soccer history that, um, you know, when Mexico and Japan faced off uh, for a playoff spot, 
for basically the last spot of the 2003 Women's World Cup. You know, they played one match in Japan, one match in Mexico. The game in Mexico, they played at Azteca and they had 70,000 people. You know, hey, um, people here are passionate, but they just need to, to be able to have those opportunities to see the team play. Yeah. Yeah. So how much um, did the roster change from CONCACAF qualifying to the Cyprus Cup last month? Mm, I think it, it was, there was, it was a, mostly the a same changes. No, oh, no, it really did change because um, a lot of the teams didn't like lend their players because they had already been away for most of the season. Oh, like, I remember, um, well, Maria Sanchez, who was signed, or her, her signing was announced, what, in December? Mm-hmm. She hadn't even really played until after Olympic qualifying. So it took, a, like, a long time for her to to get, the, to get to her debut because she was at the national team. So a lot of the teams didn't really want to lend their players again, even though it was, like, a... An international break, they decided not to, so that they could get their players back into, into playing rhythm with their with their with their clubs. So yeah, I think it was a, a different um, roster. And it's it's hard when you know the way that uh, we do qualifying, where it's a big block tournament like that, that you know eats up a lot of league time, right? I mean, when when you're following the traditional soccer calendar of, you know, fall to spring, um, having, you know, a big three-week block in the middle of it, separate from the other international breaks, that's that's going to be problematic. But so so let's let's talk about um the league. Um how are how are things going in the league, you know, this spring season before um everything came to a standstill? Well the thing was that it was a bit um, unsteady in terms of a lot of the teams missing those those national team players. Uh-huh. Like, for example, Chivas, we were already missing um, Janely Farias and then like Maria Sanchez, who hadn't been able to play with the team. And then for the U-20s, we had to let go three players because Nicole Perez, Ahmed Vasquez, and Jocelyn Montoya, they all left for the U-20 Right, National right, team. and so I didn't even mention that. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that you had the qualifying for the U twenty Women's World Cup. Yeah, so there there was like a this big time period when the teams were missing either senior national team players or U twenty national team players. So it was a, a bit weird in terms of how the teams were lining up. And for example, Tigres and and Monterrey were like the finalists. They started one week after the rest of the teams. So the way the, st- the standings are right now after this break is that Tigres is in first place, but they've only played eight matches. And there are teams in the top eight that have played already 10 matches. So it's a bit like uh, weird and, and patchy that way that some teams have been starting later and some teams didn't have some players. But I mean, the top eight right now for the league, it sort of looks like how would you would expect, like Tigres is in first place, second place is, is Atlas, third Chivas, uh, fourth place is Monterrey, and then fifth place is America, sixth place Pachuca, and seven and eight is León and Cruz Azul, who are usually teams that are fighting for that eighth spot. Mm-hmm. So it, even with all the things that have happened in, 
the top eight doesn't look really that different from what you would normally expect. And of course, for Liga MX, the top eight is key because of the playoff system that's done at the end of the season where the top eight make the Ligia, the, 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 the playoff system. Well, and, and tell me about um, how Maria Sanchez from, from Chicago is doing. Cause apparently I learned today, there are two Maria Sanchez's that play for Chivas. Yeah, that's, that's the funny part. We have Maria Andrea Sanchez, who is a left back, and she has been getting um, national team call-ups. She didn't get called to the Olympics, which was a bit of a surprise because she has been consistently getting called. And then we have uh, Maria Guadalupe Sanchez, who is Maria Sanchez, a.k.a. Maria Sanchez from Chicago. <laughs> but the thing is that um, the other Maria Andrea Sanchez, she has been going by Andrea Sanchez for quite a while, but... In the broadcast, they usually grab the first name that they see. So it was funny in, in the few matches that she did play because it was like, Maria Sanchez sends to Maria Sanchez and then Sanchez to Sanchez. And off they go. And it's like weird because it's like, how many Sanchez's are there in the team? But I was hoping that they would get the hang of it in a while, but now we we don't know what's going to happen. So it was a bit confusing and, and it's really funny what, what has been happening with, with that. And this this is what nicknames are for, right? They they both need some really creative nickname nicknames that are that are very different, right? We'll just we'll just have to leave it leave it to the Chivas fans to to choose what those are. So so where is the league right now in terms of how long have they been shut shut down and what are you know what what plans have been put out there if if anything? Well, the thing was that. Uh... The last matches were played on Sunday, March 15, mm-hmm. uh, which was like a, it was a long weekend because the Monday, the 16th, it was a, a an official holiday. So there mm-hmm. was, uh, that weekend, there was a bit of talks in terms of what's going to happen. We don't know. I was actually planning to go to Guadalajara to see, to see Chivas Women play, but then I started like hearing rumors that the mayor of, of Zapopan, the municipality where the Chivas Stadium is, that he was asking to play behind closed doors. So I, I in the end, I decided not to go because I didn't know what was going to happen. So we, we had like matches on on Saturday that were, that they were played with fans. Still, like Chivas played on Sunday behind closed doors, but the day before there was this big Pumas against Cruz Azul match, which which was actually a a historic match because it was the first time that uh, the Pumas women's team played at the at the Stadio Olimpico. They had never really played on the stadium before. So oh, so they were playing at the, the biggest stadium that the club has. Yeah, they, they hadn't played uh, there since the league began. And there was also like this discussion online where they were saying, yeah, I know we, we need to like stop doing mass events, but everybody was like rooting for Pumas to get that to play with the fans, <laughs> you know, in the stadium. So we were a bit torn in that in that front, but in the end, they, they did play with fans. They had, I, I can't remember exactly how many people, I think it was 15,000 people, maybe a bit more. So it was like... At least they got that last hooray before, you know, the league was closed. But the thing is, the suspension of the league was announced on Monday 16, but several teams were at the airport traveling for their matches. So it was a bit weird because they they weren't told in advance. And I think it was Tigres and Tijuana who were like stranded at the airport and they were like, wait, what? We're not playing, but we're already here. So (laughs) it was a bit of, of, of crazy 
in terms of, of how things were happening so fast that we, we didn't know what what was really going to be decided. So Jornada 10 was played like halfway through some things you didn't get to play their matches for that for that round. And so I, I'm guessing that everyone's just staying where they are now, staying with their clubs. Um, and, you know, has has the Federation said anything about, you know, how long they think things are going to go or it's just like everybody else just kind of a wait and see? Mm, well, there was a, a statement released by the league on, on March 24 and they basically said we have no set date for to return. But they, they also mentioned uh, other things like they, they said that whenever the league came back, um, they agreed to have like a small training period so that teams would get back into rhythm before starting. So they are not going to go straight to matches. They also right. said that they they were going to create like an esports league, but they haven't really released any information on that. And they also asked clubs to, to you know to report to the league how how about the health of their players, if anyone got sick or something. And they kept on doing like training programs online in by the Centro de Innovación Tecnológica, which is like the center that provides all the stats and that kind of thing. They've been developing like a training online training program for coaches and players so that they can keep um, learning and, and doing their workouts online. So that, that's where the league is right now. And the bigger breaking news yesterday was that the under 30, all the way to the U20s, they are going to end the tournament. So they're, they're, that's done for this season. But they were going to do a U17 and U20 cup tournaments uh, in Toluca, they obviously don't have a date, but all the all the youth tournaments, those are really like done. There's not going to be like a champion this season, unless yeah. it's for the cup tournament. And for the women, um, like the main concern or or the thing that that's been in terms of, of talking what's going on, besides of the suspension, has been the the topic of the wages, right? Because, you know. Um, Several leagues and, and teams have been talking about whether they are going to get wage cuts. And so far, um, and the, and a bit the, the conversation started because one of the players from Pachuca, Alejandria Godinez, she tweeted that she had heard that some clubs would cut women's team wages. And it was like, I mean, we don't even get paid that much. Right. We are going to cut our wages. And a lot of players depend on the, on the clubs for like their housing and for their meals. And getting their wages cut would be like a huge blow to them. And so far, um, four clubs have like explicitly stated that they are not going to cut their their women's team's wages, which is Pachuca, León, Pumas, and Rayadas. Like those are the four that have uh, said we are not going to do this. And of course, there are, there are like other concerns because um, dual nationality players, uh, Mexican Americans. Some of them did return to the States to be with their families. So I know that for some of them, it must have been like extra difficult um, navigating these days in terms of wondering, can I go or I'm not going or where I'm going to be like spending this time because there wasn't like a, a time frame in terms of when, when the league's going to return. And also, there's also the, the topic of, you know, player contracts expiring because uh, last time, the or last year, the registration period was, was from June 14 
to September the 5th. So I guess, I guess clubs must be trying to figure out um, if they have any contract renewals uh, pending, what, what they're going to do on that front. Yeah, and there's so many question marks, right? And it's it's there's no easy answers. There's no easy timelines. I mean, we're hearing, um, you know, that transfer windows might shift. Um, we've already seen the Olympics postponed. We've are you know, and now we're hearing that uh, the women's Euro will probably push back a year as well, because otherwise it would conflict you know, with, with, with the Olympics. So right. Yeah. It's just a, a big question mark, but it's, it's good to hear that, you know, for right now, you know, wages are, are protected, uh, you know, for the league. Um, and, and that they're doing something to keep, keep the players at least active electronically. <laughs> that sounds kind of funny, but it, it's like, I think we're at a time where, uh, you know, everybody has to get really creative about how they, uh, exercise and take care of themselves and engage with fans. And, you know, um, especially for so many of us stuck at, stuck at home, um, who maybe aren't working as much, you know, it's, it's like you still very much want, uh, the pleasant distraction of soccer. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in terms of the, of the work aspect of things for players, um, the interesting part is that there was also like a larger conversation in the country about women's rights um, with, the, with the International Women's Day and the women's strike on March 9th that happened here in Mexico. But also the players had released uh, a manifest just like uh, four or five days before the league was suspended. Uh-huh. Where they were talking about, um, you know, about their rights or, or their demands that they have towards the league. So it's interesting that they're coming into this situation and hopefully they will take advantage of that, like, momentum they have of, of having been together and speaking out on these issues. And that if something happens that, you know, they, they know that they have been discussing these things. And the manifest was really, really interesting. It's a, it's a bit long, but they have, like, five main points that they that they released and they were basically you know uh, I did a, a loose translation of the main five points and the first point was we claim that women are recognized as people and full human beings that is that football players and women in football can be mothers students and workers by choice without facing the historic and systematic barriers that have been imposed which is interesting because out of the 18 teams in the league, I think that only Pachuca has a protocol for player pregnancies. It's something that hasn't really been discussed in the league as a whole. Uh-huh. And then the second point was we asked that the football industry and everyone who participates in it stop looking at who plays, who comments, and who coaches to focus on how they play, how they broadcast, how they comment, and how they coach. Because the value of the actions comes from the meaning of the sport itself not from who doesn't. And then the third point was we demanded true equality that aspires to make women's football its own self-sustainable business separate from the income and results of its male counterparts, which is also like a really sensitive point because on like the NWSL here the teams depend on the on the male on, on the men's team on, on the club. So it has happened that if the men's team disbands, uh, then the, the women's team disbands too, independently of, of whatever results they were getting. And then the fourth point was, we demand an end to the current forms of the game whose gender roles are aggressive in their language, harass and censor everything that questions them. 
And the fifth point was we celebrate that women's football has become a movement that is revolutionary in itself, and we wish for it to continue as an activist platform. So it's really interesting um, how these things happen a bit in a sequence. So also that while there is this uncertainty of, of what's going to happen in the league, we are also in a moment where we can uh, or, or we're seeing more players speaking out on their labor issues or, or other issues that they face, you know, as women athletes. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how they they face whatever, you know, happens here in terms of, of wages or contracts or anything else. And in a certainly positive way, we've seen like a change even in how the league reacts because um, a year ago, over a year ago, we had like the, the murder of Maribarra and there wasn't really an official statement from the league to say um, anything or an obituary or anything from the league. And, and now we even saw with the women's strike, some teams um, stating that they were going to support the strike and players striking that day as well, they, they didn't go to train. So we're seeing a bit of a shift in how the league's discussing and approaching these topics. And it's great to see that players are now speaking out and, and, and doing these things. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how, how it, it goes and it keeps developing to make sure that the players have better work conditions. Yeah, that's so so great to see see that shift, and you know, hopefully, you know, this pause in in play, um, you know, won't affect that momentum, uh, you know, very much. But uh, Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time to to get me up to up to date on everything that's happening in Mexico women's soccer right now, and you know, keep up the good work you're doing. Thanks so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Right, time to wrap it up with the back four. Um, you probably know by now that the 2020 Olympics have been pushed back a year, basically to the exact same time frame in July and August in 2021. Uh, similarly, the men's Euro, the men's Copa America had already been pushed back to 2021. And it looks like the women's Euro will also be pushed back a year, pushed back to summer 2022. Um Good thing about this uh, it means that uh, the Women's Euro won't uh, end up being conflicting with the Men's World Cup. Normally, obviously, we'd have a Men's World Cup in summer 2022, but because it's in Qatar, that one got moved to December. So 2020 Olympics will be played summer 2021. Women's Euro 2021 will be played 2022. So, and of course, they haven't even finished qualifying for Women's Euro, and there were still uh, four matches to be played to, to finish up Olympic qualifying. Um, you know, so we don't know when that will be wrapped up, but at some point, South Korea and China will face off in a two game series to determine one spot, and Chile and Cameroon will face off in another two game series to determine the final spot. And since I've been stuck at home a lot with, uh, of course, not a lot of work to do with the, the, the league on pause, I've been doing a lot of deep dives into my archive and getting things organized. Um, so I'm putting out an open call 
for anybody who might have uh, an old U.S. Women's National Team or WSA or WPS or even women's college soccer video uh, with that would have significant players in it. If you have a VHS tape or even a DVD, um, I will convert it to digital. Um, all you have to do is send it to me and I will convert it to digital and send you the digital file back. I'm just trying to build up an archive and see how many uh, goals for players we can capture all time. Uh, just send me an email at keeper at keepernotes.com. Uh, with any questions. And speaking of historic women's soccer videos, NWSL is replaying games on Twitch each weekend, so be sure you're following NWSL on Twitter to get regular updates about which matches they're going to do each Saturday. Um, Yesterday, uh, or rather, yes, Saturday the 4th, I did a co-stream with Jeff Kasuf of EqualizerSoccer.com. So we just kind of did commentary while we watched the old 2016 match of Houston Dash versus Western New York Flash. I also recommend um, if you go to NWSLSoccer.com, when you go to the the site, there should be a pop-up to sign up for their league newsletter. That's a new thing. I think everybody should do that. Sign up for the newsletter. And one more way to keep yourself occupied other than watching videos, of course, is with my Keeper Notes NWSL Almanac. 350 pages of WOSO stats, photos, notes, records, all kinds of things. You cannot get this information anywhere else all in one place. You can order it now at KeeperNotes.com. You can buy it in print, in PDF, or buy both. I'm also working on a Dash-specific almanac right now, and I might do almanacs for each team in the future, uh, depending on what kind of feedback I get. So if you want an almanac for your team, let me know uh, so I can decide if it's (laughs) worth the effort. It does take a a lot of work to get these initially set up. So, of course, you can send me an email anytime to keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of The Mix Zone. Thanks to everyone for listening or sharing this podcast with someone else. Um, Thanks to Icarus fc.com for their support. Uh, They do great custom kits for youth clubs, adult clubs, rec squads. Uh, They can help you create the kit of your dreams at an affordable price. So just check out IcarusFC.com. And as always, many thanks to Sean and the beautiful game network for making this podcast possible. But now she's anybody's girl.